Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr Rayleigh Alou. CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynecologist and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. Welcome, Raelia. Thank you. Welcome. Before we begin today's show, we have a little favour to ask. If you're a fan of Knocked Up, please rate it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really helps other listeners find the show and the resources we offer. If you've got any questions and would like Raelia to answer them, please email us at podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Don't worry, we'll keep all queries anonymous. Dr Hayley Matic is a psychologist and infertility counsellor based in Melbourne. She has a doctorate in health psychology and specialises in infertility, pregnancy loss and surrogacy. Having worked for over 10 years at some of Melbourne's major IVF clinics, Haley has supported hundreds of individuals and couples as they have sought to become parents via various forms of assisted reproductive technology. Now consulting in private practice, Haley enjoys working with clients at all stages of their fertility treatment and seeks to promote good mental health and strong relationships throughout the preconception, prenatal and postnatal periods. Haley, tell us a bit about how you got to specialise in fertility. What was your career path and what got you there? Uh, well, I began with a, my undergraduate was a Bachelor of Applied Science studying psychology and it was towards the end of my fourth year where I needed to make a decision about what I wanted to specialise in. Um, and at that point, I'd had some exposure through friends, family, going through various forms of illness, medical conditions, and also infertility. And I started to become much more interested in the world of health psychology and the impact of medical conditions on psychological well-being. Um, so I then undertook a doctorate in health psychology where my research thesis and clinical placement centred around sexual and reproductive health. Amelia, when... Would you involve Haley in the process of a patient getting pregnant? Oh, look, I think there's such a varied experience in the fertility journey. Not everybody needs uh, assisted reproductive treatment, um, but many women and couples have lots of um, needs for psychological support and supported decision making and having a, a professional input to to that process. So there's a whole variety of, of patients that I'd refer to someone like Hayley uh, for her professional input, whether that be, for example, if a patient had suffered a miscarriage and needed psychological support, or if a patient had come to a crossroads in their life and wasn't sure whether they wanted to proceed with egg freezing versus having a baby and needed to have some support in terms of decision-making. Uh, there's a lot of women out there who might have the need of a fertility-focused psychologist in terms of support and, and potentially prevention but also 
um, management of a tendency to perinatal depression, such a variety of, of contexts. In Victoria, there's a, there's a level of psychologist support that you get when you get into the IVF process. But maybe could you talk us through how you support, say, a couple that are going through infertility? Challenges? Uh, it, it depends a lot. I mean, the support available to patients on IVF is often provided within clinic and that's largely done under a mandated banner where people are required to attend a session around preparing for treatment. Uh, my work now on the outside of the clinics, so I have spent a number of years within clinics, as you said, um, but it really depends on where they're at. So for a couple who are about to embark on treatment, my work with them is often about setting up the relationship and ensuring that the communication pathways, um, supports, needs communication are really well established before they embark on something like fertility treatment, which can be quite stressful and it can go on for quite some time. Mm. Um, and when I've got couples who are perhaps further along in their journey, they might be in the midst of treatment, as Raylia said, making decisions about what to do. My support is often focused around how do each how does each partner really look at what's important to them in making that decision and moving forward. Um, and then we've got couples who are maybe at the end of treatment and then what does life look like for them as a couple, either with a baby that maybe the end of treatment has been from pregnancy, um, but if it's been without a pregnancy, what does life look like for that couple without being parents? What are some of the common themes of people who see you preconception? Uh, generally, there's a, a lot of anxiety, I think, about what's to come, not knowing uh, what might happen, what treatment might involve. Um, there may be a history of loss, so pregnancy loss is quite common in um, patients, at least that I see, before they embark on treatment. Um, sometimes they've had m many months, if not years, of trying to get pregnant before they undertake treatment. So really looking at what the impact of that has been, but also if there's pre-existing psychological issues, often anxiety and depression might already be present. How are we going to cope with that through the course of something like IVF treatment, which we know is stressful? So Hayley... Having had a really rich experience working within various IVF clinics, some of our listeners may be contemplating IVF and be a bit apprehensive about what, what is that mandated appointment that the state of Victoria requires. Would you mind running through what you would have done in that context within a clinic, what, what that session's all about? Sure. Um, obviously, it, it's going to depend a lot around the, the person that you meet within a mandated counselling session. Um, the reason for the mandate is often around making sure that patients are well informed about what their treatment's going to involve and that they've had the opportunity to talk about um, freezing embryos, which is obviously a big part of IVF and what that might mean for them legally and uh, more long term. Uh, but in those sessions, I would typically be really taking a preventative type approach to what it's going to mean to be on treatment for that couple. I, I certainly see many couples at that point in treatment where they're quite excited and optimistic about engaging in something new. So there's not necessarily distress as such at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so that session for me has always been about how do we preserve this? What do we need to have in place to promote good wellbeing throughout? How do you talk to each other? It's often... Um, within a couple the first time they might have embarked on a challenge like this together. So what do they know about each other? How can they get better at identifying their needs, making sure that they're there for each other and continuing to be a part of it together? Um, often with fertility treatment, it can be about the woman. She's often the one who's attending appointments, undergoing the treatment. It's much more female dominant in that sense, but we want to make sure that the partners have a role to play and that they know what that role is and it might be something they need to work out as they go. With the couples coming to see you, I guess as a friend and an outsider... I would imagine that the stress of not getting pregnant would put put strain on a relationship. 
do you find that couples come and see you early enough in the process? Are they reluctant? How, how do you help couples? Uh, look, to be honest, I, I would say that without the mandate for counselling, um, a lot of couples would never attend. It's often maybe just one of the partners that would be willing to participate in that. So I think generally there is a reluctance for couples to get involved in the counselling process until it is quite far progressed and we're then looking at correcting problems rather than preventing them. Um, but that being said, not, not all couples are like that and some are quite proactive and wanting to do the best from the beginning. As friends on the outside, how, how can we support our friends undergoing IVF or miscarriage or the loss? Look, it's so person dependent, I think. And often when I meet with um, women or couples before they embark on treatment, part of my conversation with them will always be, who do you want to know about this, that you're going through this? Who do you want to share this with? And at what level do you want people to know about what's going on? And how do we start to establish those boundaries really early on so that no one's over disclosing? Because I think at the beginning of fertility treatment, you want to set things up in a way that's sustainable for 12 months or longer. So if you've told everybody everything from day one, you need to be prepared that for a year or more you may have them asking you questions. Um, I always encourage people to, when they share their IVF experience with somebody, to just let them know what, what it is that they're telling them, why they're telling them and what they want back from them. So to be really clear that, look, I'm just letting you know this is something we're going through. It might be that I'm quite stressed at some points, but I'll, need, I'll let you know if I need any help. So there's no need to keep checking on me. So really just setting that up so that everyone's clear around what they're wanting from each other in that interaction. Yeah, I think that's so important. And in terms of your experience of kind of things that have, um, I suppose, been very upsetting to clients when they've come to, to kind of um, check in with you, I mean, sometimes well-meaning friends, family members can be and, you know, as you say, overly intrusive. <laughs> well, it is a very private it is. situation when you're going through fertility treatment. What are some of the things, just for our listeners who have, you know, the, the well-meaning and, you know, coming from the heart intention of supporting friends, family members that might be experiencing infertility, what are some of the don'ts? What are the, some of the things that, that we really, that can upset people? Uh, certainly not to minimise what someone's going through or to reassure them or tell them a story about, well, I know that this person did this one thing, offering suggestions of where else they can go. M most of the time when anyone's disclosing something personal and emotional, what they want is validation more than anything else. So if as a friend or a family member, someone's disclosing something very sensitive and painful to you, um, really your best bet is to just acknowledge how hard that must be for them and ask them what it is they need at that point, rather than assuming that you know what it is or to try and offer them some advice to feel better, because often there isn't a way to feel better. We really just want the space to allow for that conversation to unfold without advice being given. I mentioned in, when I introduced you about surrogacy, and I think that's something getting a bit more press at the moment as, as laws are changing. What kind of assessment is involved with couples seeking surrogacy? Uh, well, it's not always couples that are seeking that's assessment. True. <laughs> um, so normally when um, either a couple or a woman are seeking surrogacy in Victoria, they have to go through quite a, an intense process within their treatment clinic, and that will involve sessions with the counsellor based within the clinic. My role now outside of the clinic is to provide psychological assessments, uh, which is for the purpose of the patient review panel. So that will be normally requiring me to meet with the 
um, intended parent or parents, the surrogate and her partner, yeah. um, if there is one. And occasionally there will also be egg donor or sperm donor involved as well. And that would involve me meeting with everybody that's a part of that arrangement to really make sure that they have thought about the implications of what that will mean, that they're all capable of making informed consent and that we've done some psychological assessment on their well-being and their um any history of drug and alcohol use, any sort of um, psychological problems, anxiety, depression, not for the purpose of saying they can't access treatment, but really to look at well, how is this going to work while these things exist. Taking a step back, just the patient review panel might not be something that no, everybody ask, knows yes. about. Um, Hayley, do you mind just outlining what that is? And I mean, it's a very Victorian thing. Uh, I'm sure surrogacy is done differently in different places. But here in Victoria, we do have a patient review, review panel. Um, and in that panel, uh, it's really something that the, the plan is made for surrogacy. Do you want to explain kind of the different parties in that panel and what the psychologist's role is in that panel? Uh, well, uh, so, uh, as a psychologist, I don't obviously sit on the panel. Um, so the panel was made up, from my understanding, of a range of different professionals and lay people um, who will take on the applications of uh, surrogate parties when they're wanting to access treatment. So everyone that wants to do surrogacy in Victoria will need to put an application into the patient review panel. Um, this is an independent organisation, independent to the clinics, um, and the submissions with that application will include a report from a psychologist. There'll normally be a legal report, so the party will need to meet with lawyers, and the clinics themselves provide a report around the medical need and the implications counselling that's taken place. So it's quite a... It's quite an intense process. Um, there's often quite a wait and, and those who do make the application do need to sit in a hearing and present um, their case to them and it will either be approved or not approved before they can access treatment within their clinic. And surrogacy is altruistic in Australia. What do you think about the current legislation? Any changes that you'd like to see based on your experience? What do you... Uh, look, to, to be honest, I think at the moment, I mean, there's still quite a, a new um, offering to, to fertility patients in Victoria. We've been doing it for a few years now, but it's still, I think we're still learning about what works and what doesn't. Um, at the moment, the cases that I've seen that have come through have worked beautifully well um, through the surrogacy assessment, but obviously it requires an altruistic person offering to be the surrogate for somebody generally that they know, um, and not everyone has access to that in their lives. So I think while the altruistic program works wonderfully for those who have access to it, there are a whole group of fertility patients who aren't able to access surrogacy in Victoria because they haven't got someone who's offering to donate or to um, be their surrogate in that situation. And so we still have quite a group who are seeking treatment overseas at, at quite a high financial and social cost, I guess, to have to do that. So I, I don't necessarily know if we need to rush and make changes for a commercial-based surrogacy program, but I think we need to be quite open-minded about what we're offering and, and what would be involved in something a little bit more broad than what we currently have. Yeah, I think Australia is quite a conservative place in terms of um, a lot of different aspects of what we consider acceptable in our society. And there, there are a whole lot of things in terms of surrogacy that, you know, things can go badly wrong. Um, and I suppose that the goals of the system, I guess the, the good side of the current system is that we really kind of think of those problems before they happen and, and try and make sure that if someone is going to enter into a surrogate 
arrangement, be that the surrogate herself or the commissioning or, you know, kind of, well, it's not really commissioning, but the, the, the woman or, or man or couple um, who, are, who are trying to have a baby, you know, making sure that everything's going to work well. It, the legislation at the moment in Victoria is still that the person who gives birth to the baby is the legal parent and you know one of the worries I, I suppose as a couple accessing surrogacy is is what if the surrogate changes her mind at the last minute and some of the legal stuff that goes around that is probably focused mostly on on that and making sure that lots of preparations being done that's right and i think because in in most um, of the cases that go through in the system as it is, it's someone that's well known to the intended parents. There's a, a large degree of trust that when that baby is born, whilst legally it is the child of the surrogate, it will be um, legally altered through the parentage order, which happens a bit later on down the track. And there's trust that that will happen. That there won't be somebody keeping hold of the baby at the end of the process. Whereas I think something like a commercial type arrangement, I guess, while those laws are in place, there's a risk there either that we don't want to make sure that these babies don't get to the families who have started the process with them. And I think there's, there'd be a whole lot that needs to be reviewed before we could alter the system that we have right now. At what stage does the parentage change? So I, I had no idea that the baby, despite the ownership of the genetic material actually belonged to who gave birth to it. At what stage does that change? That's a good question. I, I do know that. It's, I've lost. Um, there's, there's a period of a number of months before they're so allowed to put so in. So it's not immediate? No, no, they need to go to court. There's a court date oh. where everyone will go and the parentage will be the parentage order will be made. Um, so that's obviously some anxiety there. If if the relationship with the surrogate um, party is is not as close as what they would like it to be, but you know, my knowledge is that it's there's never been a time that a parentage order hasn't been given and that the baby hasn't ended up with the intended parents. But there is that risk, and and legally everyone enters into it, which is why. The preparation work, the legal advice is so important to make sure that everyone's informed. I think it sounded a bit scary that there's a review and it's quite a big process, but there's a reason for it. Yeah, yeah. We want to make sure that everyone's protected, not only the child that's born at the end of the day, but all parties that are involved. Yeah, and looking from the surrogate's um, perspective, Haley, I mean, even if it's an intended situation, even if the genetic material didn't come from the surrogate, which is the usual process yeah. in Victoria, to carry a child for nine months and give birth to that child and then um, pass that child on to the intended parents, that that must be such a difficult time for the surrogate. Um, can you talk us through the kind of things that, like how often would you would you be involved with a surrogate at that point? How would you support them? Um, and how, how do they react in that circumstance? The women and couples that I've worked through have actually been amazing and they often haven't seen it as a challenging time. It's, it's often a joyful time. Um, and I think part of the selection of a surrogate in the beginning and the person that you invite into that process for you is, is done around the basis of them being robust and, and psychologically prepared for what that might mean for them. Um, often women who have um, acted as surrogates have an amazing ability to not only care for the baby, but to psychologically separate themselves from being the mother. So if they've carried babies in the past where they have been their own children, they'll often talk about a surrogate pregnancy very differently, that they've never entered into that bonding and attachment, but they've cared for that baby knowing that it will be handed on. So 
often at the time of delivery, there's the joy of actually seeing the intended parents take the baby and that overcomes any sense of grief and loss that might happen there. But we do follow up, particularly within the clinic role um, with surrogates soon after birth to make sure that they are feeling okay with that and offering support if there's any challenges to that at the time. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Thank you for describing that for us. I want to talk about a bit of a sad thing. We have an episode on this. We call it the sad, the sad episode where we talk about when to decide, when to end trying. Yeah. A couple's been trying through IVF, through natural methods, everything, and they've decided that they're going to stop trying. I, I would imagine a psychologist is, is imperative in that, in that space. How, what are sort of some of the decisions that couples can make and how are they supported while making them? In terms of timing to end yeah, treatment? Yeah, like I guess making that decision and do they move on to surrogacy or adoption or do they just stop? I think um, a lot of it depends on having had really good medical advice around that time. I think for many people ending treatment, it ultimately is their decision. It's very rare, at least in my experience, that a doctor will say, never, ever, ever will this happen for you. So it ends up being their decision either as an individual or as a couple to say we've had enough. Um, and so work, the work of a psychologist in that is really to look at uh, both partners in that relationship on the same page there in terms of readiness. Often that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. So the work will be around helping that alignment and readiness to make such a call um, happen. Otherwise, you know, we're often looking at what are the other options and what would it mean for them to pursue them? It's often very costly. There are often limitations to what one person might be willing to do, whether they want to introduce donor gametes, eggs or sperm um, into their family. And I, I think it's it's often just the beginning of another conversation. So the actual ultimate decision to end treatment completely can take many months, if not longer. And often I'll talk to people from the very beginning um, to, to start to look at what would be the conditions that at this point would mean you don't want to continue with treatment. Most people would normally say things like, if our relationship is suffering, if psychologically we're not well. So I think the earlier you start to talk about the end, the more prepared people are going to be when they get to that point. It's not like they've had to just get so worn down that they've been confronted with the decision, but they've thought it through as to what would be the reasons that they can't go on any further. Yeah. I think, you know, it's important to say that, you know, most patients in my practice who we embark on fertility treatment do ultimately succeed but there will be a proportion who don't and there'll be a proportion of patients who right from the beginning uh, I'll counsel probably don't have the world's best prognosis, especially with their own eggs, especially women who are, you know, kind of over 40 at the beginning, um, potentially with a low egg count or who've come to me for a second opinion who've had poor IVF outcomes in the hands of another specialist. Um, So, you know, certainly I think there, there are some couples where the prognosis is is going to be guarded from the beginning. I've found that some couples do decide ultimately to move on to something like egg donation where at the beginning that might feel like a bit of a deal breaker for them. Um, How do you feel couples that you've looked after in that circumstances have um, reacted and potentially changed. Yeah, I agree. I think often things that they would say they would never do uh, suddenly looked at very differently when you haven't got much choice. So, um, uh, But I think, it, again, it varies. Some people are really open-minded when they come in and they think, well, yes, I'll do egg donation if I need it. Again, it's not always something shared by both partners. Uh, but I think it's really good to have those conversations. How would you feel about this? What would it mean if, if that's where we end up, particularly 
as treatment cycles, if there's repeated treatment failures and it's looking like that we might be having that conversation realistically, let's start talking about it sooner. What do we know about that? I think a lot of the time people's reluctance to look at other options is just a lack of information about what that means and how, as parents, that would affect them moving on if they were to have success via one of those more non-traditional means of getting pregnant. And Hayley... You mentioned before about kind of discordance between what one person in a relationship wants to do and what another wants to do. And we know that in, especially in IVF, the the major physical burden of the treatment is on the woman and hormonal changes and emotional ups and downs are shared by a couple, but a lot of it is on the woman. Do you find that there's often circumstances where a partner's pressuring a woman to continue when she doesn't want to? No, not really. I think often partners um, in wanting to support their their partner, I guess the other male or female partner supporting the partner undergoing treatment um, more than anything will often be if there's an issue in that discordance, will be them wanting to stop because they can see the stress and they worry about the impact for for the woman undergoing treatment. Whereas a lot of women who are undergoing treatment can handle that. It's just very difficult to watch from the sideline, I think, and to not be experiencing. So I tend to see it more from the other side. It's often, hey, let's stop this. It's too hard. It's not worth it. Whereas, I mean, sorry, as opposed to saying we need to persevere with this at any cost. That's good to know. Yeah. On the flip side... Mm-hmm. egg freezing. Do you work with people on when to use them and when to freeze them? And when to get rid of them when you don't want to use them? Well, I mean, again, it's a pretty new technology. So it I certainly is, work yeah. with a lot of women who are freezing their eggs. Yes. I think there's a real um, uncertainty around how useful those eggs will be. Yes. <laughs> Not knowing how many will thaw, how many will be fertilising and obviously allowing for the potential to be pregnant. Um, so I think the decision about when to use them, it, it's a very complicated one. And, and it's I think, new, isn't it? It mm. is. And I, I think there's probably, you know, eggs in storage that might not even be considered being used for a number of years till. Um, and it, it often people want, might be freezing them when they're single, waiting to meet that partner. Others are freezing them at the beginning of treatment kind of as a bit of an insurance policy for if they kind of end up a few years in and they need to go back to using the eggs that they stored earlier on. So decisions will differ depending on that circumstance. You know, I think that's a really interesting space because, you know, when you look at historical data, remembering that egg freezing's only been non-experimental since 2012, so it's a relatively new medical technology. Mm-hmm. Um, women who first froze their eggs were probably doing so reactively. It was very expensive at the beginning and um, women were kind of, you know, in their late 30s, even early 40s when the quality of the eggs were not fantastic anymore. You know, we know that of those women, you know, some of them froze eggs to come to terms with an ultimate decision never to use them. I think now we're really seeing egg freezing starting to come into its own, which is as a preventative technology. And we have women who are, you know, often around the age of 35 and ideally even under 35 who are freezing their eggs and um, doctors who are encouraging them to freeze them in good number. So the prognosis for future pregnancy for eggs frozen in that circumstance is certainly a lot, lot better. And um, I actually now I'm starting to have lots of babies in my practice that are born from frozen eggs, which I couldn't say was the truth um, even five years ago, it's much less common to use eggs that had been frozen. So um, I think it's such a changing dynamic. Uh, and I think the, the place of egg freezing is so individual. And we might even in the future see 
Um, women who've frozen eggs, if they don't want to or need to use them themselves, donate them to other women and, and um, kind of even increase the breadth of how this might impact us in fertility. Um, so Haley, in terms of advice for couples who have not yet embarked on assisted reproductive technology or even maybe haven't um, seen a fertility specialist but have concerns or anxiety about fertility and really do need an outside professional voice to, to guide them, how would they find you? It's probably quite difficult to find um, psychologists and specialists in mental health working outside of the clinic setting. Normally the best bet to find um, a therapist or even a couples therapist to talk to about this um, would be via their clinic or their treating doctor. If they haven't yet embarked on that, then you might be looking through the Australian Psychological Society website to find me. I'm um, based in Collingwood at a place called The Mind Room, um, where I obviously do see a large number of fertility patients. But most of the time to get access to specialists in this area, you need to kind of go through existing fertility networks. And would you go through your GP and, and, and does Medicare cover any of this psychological support? Uh, you can get a mental health treatment plan in place. It depends on the GP feeling that there's enough warranted from a psychological perspective to put a referral in place to access that. Most of the time I've found that um, people undergoing fertility or infertility, sorry, um, or treatment are able to access that support, but there are some GPs who don't feel it's a psychological disorder and may not give you that referral and therefore you have no access to Medicare. Um, but it's normally something we can put in place with some support and communication with the GP. I think it's good to know, we talk a lot about anxiety and the role of anxiety in fertility and I think it's good to know that there is support there and sometimes you just need to ask for it. That's right. And I think, like I said, the more preventative you are and then the earlier you get onto it, the better off you'll be and more able to withstand the long-term nature of fertility treatment. Thank you so much, Hayley. That was fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our episode of Knocked Up with Dr Hayley Maddock. For more information on what we've discussed, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and check out our show notes. You can also find Hayley on the following channels. At themindroom.com.au. Great. And you can find out more information about Women's Health Melbourne on the socials and also through Raylia's personal Instagram, Dr. Raylia Lou. By subscribing to our podcast and giving us a positive review, it really helps others to find us and we really appreciate your help. Our mission is to empower women seeking real, honest and accurate fertility advice. Thank you so much. <laughs>